Subscribe to The Spectator in our flash sale and you'll get 12 weeks of the magazine in print and online for just £12. Not only that, but we'll also send you a bottle of Johnny Walker Black Label Scotch Whiskey absolutely free. Hurry though, as this offer ends on Monday. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash sale. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. I'm Max Jeffrey. Every week we ask a few of our favourite writers to read their piece from the magazine aloud. On today's episode, Douglas Murray says that the case of Carl Rittenhouse shows nothing in America matters more than your identity. Henry Elliott wonders what makes a book a classic. And Sam Holmes tells us about his time as a Hamley's Christmas elf. First up, Douglas Murray. There was no reason for the world ever to hear the name Kyle Rittenhouse, except that in the summer of 2020, the USA was staring over a precipice. The Covid lockdowns effectively ended after the killing of George Floyd by a Minnesotan policeman. Suddenly, mass gatherings in the name of BLM were a public health duty, and, because it was an election year, neither Democrats nor Republicans seemed to know how to react to protests that soon degenerated into serious disorder. For a country that is only one bad police interaction away from meltdown, it was inevitable that something would happen again. Sure enough, in August, a man called Jacob Blake was shot by police in Kenosha, Wisconsin. There was a warrant out for Blake's arrest, and he was shot after fighting with police, wielding a knife, and having already been tasered. Though Blake was not killed, BLM and other protest movements immediately had another martyr to hold up as evidence of systemic racism in America. And, once again the peaceful movements turned very violent indeed. For two nights, businesses were looted and burned to the ground. Fiery but mostly peaceful protests was how CNN captioned events as its correspondent reported from in front of the fires. The police and National Guard proved wholly ineffective at stopping this looting, and Rittenhouse, whose father lives in Kenosha, decided with a friend that they should go out and try to protect local businesses. They had spent part of the day cleaning graffiti off buildings, and, as the evening came in, Rittenhouse offered to help the owner of an as-yet-unburned-out car lot protect his business. After being threatened and then chased by a mob, 17-year-old Rittenhouse ended up shooting three men, killing two of them. And, as with everything else in America, the country promptly divided over whether Kyle was a hero or a villain. The country's left-wing media immediately announced that Rittenhouse was one of these fabled white supremacists we hear so much about but so little from, and that he had deliberately targeted innocent BLM protesters. The same media said he had crossed state lines with his weapon, meaning that media and politicians who have no problem with thousands of people illegally entering the nation's southern border had to pretend to have serious concerns about people moving around inside the country. There were other problems to get over. 
One was that Rittenhouse's victims were all white, and it would be an odd sort of white supremacist who went to Kenosha to target white people. The left-wing media also had to pretend that Kenosha was at peace during the period in question and that there was no justification whatsoever for Rittenhouse or anyone else to take on the role that law enforcement abandoned during that period. Supporters of Rittenhouse had a couple of problems of their own. One was that it was not clear why a 17-year-old from Antioch, Illinois, needed to end up in Kenosha shooting two men dead. When details of the dead men came out, there was better material to work with. One of them was a convicted child rapist, and neither of Rittenhouse's victims was in any way sympathetic. In fact, they were both manifestly violent, including on the night in question, and, most likely, insane. Still, it is not as though Rittenhouse knew that one of his victims was a convicted child rapist. For a fortnight, the trial itself beamed from screens in bars and restaurants across the country. It was clear from very early on that Rittenhouse fired that night in self-defence and in justified fear of his life. The prosecution, for their part, wished to claim he was the cause of the fire, rather than a firefighter. As the jury's deliberations went on past their first day, it seemed again as though the security of a nation rested on the shoulders of men and women trying to reach a verdict based on the evidence put before them and not on the fears of what might flow from that verdict. There was talk of potential unrest if the verdict went the wrong way. In fact, the not guilty verdicts were both predictable for anyone watching the trial and clearly insufficient to start another bout of unrest in American cities. For America today is a country where the identities of people matter more than anything else. If Rittenhouse had shot three black men, then his acquittal may have led to riots. The former paper known as The Independent got around this problem by claiming in an online headline that Rittenhouse had shot three black men with his rifle. Other media were happy to mislead their consumers in similar ways, and in its way it is perfect. For in such cases anybody can be whatever you want them to be. Convicted paedophiles armed with guns stalking around Kenosha threatening to shoot people can be turned into peaceful protesters. White men can be made black. Fires that burn on camera for all to see can be erased from the collective memory. A thug can be turned into a martyr. And a naive young man can be turned into a stormtrooper of white supremacy. As the Rittenhouse case was going on, I happened to take a brief swing through Ferguson, Missouri. Ferguson was the scene of the shooting of Michael Brown in 2014, when BLM protesters claimed Brown had his hands in the air and shouted, hands up, don't shoot, as he was shot. It later transpired this was untrue. Brown had been robbing a store and lunged for the arresting officer's gun when confronted. 
but the lie went around the world, and the crowds came out in Ferguson. The town they burned has stayed burned, by the way, with huge lots sitting like missing teeth in the areas the rioters moved through. The American media and political activists move on, but the places riddled by the lies they leave behind do not. That was Douglas Murray. Next, Henry Elliott. I used to think that you could spot a literary classic by identifying certain salient characteristics. The writing would need literary quality, for example. The book would have had some historical significance. It would have an enduring reputation among scholars and general readers. But each rule threw up exceptions. Darwin's On the Origin of Species is not an obviously literary text. E.M. Forster's Morris was first published six decades after it was written, and The Song of Q, the greatest work of Vietnamese literature, is virtually unknown outside Vietnam. And yet all of these books are classics. Over time, I've come to agree with Ezra Pound's warning at the start of his ABC of Reading, 1934. A classic is classic not because it conforms to certain structural rules, or fits certain definitions, of which its author had quite probably never heard, he writes, it is classic because of a certain eternal and irrepressible freshness. Pound rightly identified an internal rather than an external quality. The definition rests on an ineffable element of the reading experience. Of course, it may take time for a classic to be recognised as such. The Great Gatsby was famously snubbed by several critics. Moby Dick was widely panned in America. In Britain, every copy of The Well of Loneliness by Radcliffe Hall was destroyed, with one critic saying, I would rather give a healthy boy or a healthy girl a file of Prussic acid than this novel. Hemingway's A Farewell to Arms was burned by the Nazis. Flaubert's Madame Bovary was prohibited by the Catholic Church. Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice is still forbidden in the detainee library at Guantanamo Bay. Perhaps time does have to pass. A book has to endure in order to qualify. And in the meantime, we use modern classics to identify promising candidates. A modern classic has the same power and vitality as a classic, but it's younger. It is still speaking to the age through which we are living. As readers, we share the concerns it addresses, which makes it urgent and exciting to read. But only time will tell if those issues remain fresh after 50 or 100 years or more, if it will graduate to full classic status. As for the instant classic, I find it almost impossible to pick out contemporary books that may become the classics of the future. My hunch, though, is that it will be those by the game-changers, the genre-benders, the iconoclasts, people such as David Foster Wallace, Hilary Mantel, George Saunders, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie and Colson Whitehead. It can also work the other way. Books can cease to be classics. For most of the 20th century, paperback books were printed lithographically on expensive presses, which meant that a minimum print run was required to make reprints viable. If a title wasn't selling, it would not get reprinted, so there was a form of natural selection. Classics remained in print only if readers were buying them. For instance, titles that have ceased to be Penguin classics over the years include John Aubrey's Brief Lives, Benjamin Disraeli's Sybil, 
Amelia by Henry Fielding, Carmen by Prosper Merimee, The Myers by Echo de Queros, and Strindberg's From an Occult Diary. Today, however, the situation is different. Digital printing means it is economical to print short runs, even to print on demand. So there is seldom a practical reason for a classic to go out of print. But this raises a different issue, the prospect of an unweeded garden. Does a book need to have readers in order to qualify as a classic? In which case should publishers be pruning titles that don't sell? Being a classic is not necessarily desirable, of course. Definition of a classic, said Mark Twain in 1900. Something that everybody wants to have read and nobody wants to read. Classics are all too often associated with worthiness and schoolwork, with eating one's greens. Why, before long I shall become a classic, exclaims a novelist in one of Edith Wharton's short stories. Bound in sets and kept on the top bookshelf. Brr, doesn't that sound freezing? The problem is that classics have traditionally been associated with the concept of a canon. In 1909, the outgoing president of Harvard University, Charles W. Eliot, launched a 50-volume set of Harvard classics under the title Dr. Eliot's Five-Foot Shelf of Books. This was a grand attempt to supply such knowledge of ancient and modern literature as seemed essential to the 20th century idea of a cultivated man. But across the 23,000 pages, the 300 authors represented are exclusively white and overwhelmingly male. He omitted novelists like Jane Austen, Mary Shelley and Charlotte Bronte, campaigners like Mary Wollstonecraft, Frederick Douglass and W.E.B. Du Bois, poets like Rumi and Hafez. What seemed essential in 1909 no longer seems fit for purpose today. We need to move beyond the idea of a universal canon. There are as many canons as there are cultures, as many as there are readers. A culture's canon is an evolving consensus of individual canons, the novelist A.S. Byatt wrote. This is demonstrated by the explosion of classics published in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. Ten years after the Penguin Classics series was founded in 1946, the editors were concerned about its future. How many more titles in the classical literature of the world are there? wondered the editor-in-chief when the series comprised 60 volumes. He might have been surprised to discover that today there are nearly 2,500 titles published as Penguin Classics and Modern Classics, and hundreds more published by other imprints. Alan Bennett defined a classic as a book everyone is assumed to have read and often thinks they have read themselves. Looking at the sheer number of classics around today, his statement rings true. All of us have large gaps in our reading, and it is easy to feel insecure when those gaps include classics. This ultra-saturation of the classics market may seem intimidating, but only if we think of classics as a duty imposed from above. Today's excess should be welcomed because it allows readers the freedom to range from Chinua Achebe to Svetlana Alexievich, Yevgeny Zamyatin to Stefan Zweig, exploring and assembling their own idiosyncratic lists of essential books. As the Italian writer Italo Calvino said in 1981, all that can be done is for each one of us to invent our own ideal library of classics. We need to shift from canon building to cartography. Publishers, critics and scholars should act as guides to the blossoming literary landscape. 
signposting areas of outstanding natural beauty and encouraging readers to roam, chase butterflies and scale the literary heights where they can marvel at unforeseen vistas of future possibilities. We may not be able to explore every rabbit hole in our lifetime, but we can still have the time of our lives in the wonderland of books. As Calvino said, it is no use reading classics out of a sense of duty or respect. We should only read them for love. Henry Elliot's The Penguin Modern Classics book is out now. That was Henry Elliot. And finally, Sam Holmes. I was 19 when I became a Hamley's elf. The closest thing I can compare it to is military service. Every elf was given a uniform and it was our responsibility to make sure it looked presentable. It was green and red, matching shoes and hat, and striped tights that didn't keep the cold out while stood outside to welcome people in. Our timetable was extremely regimented. 900 hours, unlock the front door. 1200 hours, fake snowfalls on Regent Street. Appear delighted. 1800 hours, check grotto for vomit. The only skills needed were punctuality, projection, and the ability to seem happy even when freezing. There were long periods of intense boredom interspersed with bursts of immense stress. The repetitive festive soundtrack was torturous. I still know all the lyrics to Driving Home for Christmas. There were six elves in my unit. We all considered ourselves passionate creatives. In our ranks were an actress, a musician, an artist, and a comedian. After work, we could be found at the red line on Kingley Street drinking late into the night. Most of us didn't keep in touch. Carly, the actress, was in her early 20s. She'd been at the store for a while and showed me the ropes. I had a massive crush on her. She was very cool. Or as cool as you can be, dressed as an elf. Our boss was the events manager, Mark, one of the nicest people I have ever worked for. Imagine an old punk rocker who decided to settle down and play with toys. He still works in the Lego department and is friends with Oscar winners, multi-platinum artists and royalty who have all turned up at Hamley's with their kids. But he was lovely to everyone, including the elves. He could have stayed inside, but most days he dressed up in a Dickensian outfit and joined us out on the street. The sleepovers were the most intense part of the job. If mummy and daddy are rich enough, kids can spend the night at Hamley's. They arrive when it shuts on Friday, and all night the store is theirs. They can play with whatever they want, stay up as late as they want, eat whatever they want. For ourselves, there was no sleep, which normally meant you got the next day off. After one Hunger Games-themed sleepover, a five-hour Nerf gun fight plus indoor archery practice, a fellow elf pulled a convenient sickie. Despite working late all night, I was called in the next day because Father Christmas was coming to Hamley's. That morning, I started to think Scrooge and the Grinch had a point until I looked through the windows to see hundreds of kids eagerly peering in. It's an elf, one cried. To them, I was not an exhausted classic student standing upright only thanks to Harry Bow Cola bottles. I was an elf. And where there are elves, Father Christmas isn't far behind. Who's ready for Christmas? I yelled at the top of my lungs. Snow started to fall. Not real, of course. Ten minutes later, a big red car roared down Regent Street. Out stepped the man of the hour. He was a very professional Father Christmas and made a surprisingly good joke about there being nowhere to park the reindeer. As he made his way into the grotto, he gave me a jolly grin and whispered, You look dreadful, mate. Sleepover, I replied. 
He put his finger to his nose knowingly. Good man. I'll see you inside. That was Sam Holmes, and that's it for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to read pieces like it, then you should subscribe to The Spectator magazine. We've got a flash sale on at the moment. You can get 12 weeks of the magazine and a free bottle of Johnny Walker's Black Label Whiskey for just £12. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash sale to subscribe today. Thank you for listening and do join us again next week.